Well, I was thinking about a story that I had heard from a, uh, another pastor. And they were telling a story about when they were a young minister for the first time, and they were going to uh, help do a funeral. And they'd never done funerals, and, and they went into this space, and one of the things that happens is the funeral home people are usually really trustworthy. Of like They have good senses of here's what needs to happen, here's the, the logistics to make this work. And uh, the funeral home guys turned to the, the pastor and told him, now, it's a tradition here that when you go forward to the body, you kiss the, the body. And they said it real, real serious to them. And so the pastor goes up and he kisses the body, and the funeral home people were just sneering and, ch- and chuckling that they had tricked this young pastor into, uh, into uh, you know, showing that he didn't really know what he was doing. Uh, and in that story, the pastor usually just conveyed how, like, how he felt so embarrassed. Uh, and I'm also thinking about like the people that might have felt hurt of like, wait, what, what are you doing? Like, this is my loved one who's passed. Like, this isn't just time for joking. Uh, but there's something weird that when people tell us something to do, it's kind of in our nature to try to follow suit. Uh, every once in a while, you might be someone who like, when someone tells you what to do, you immediately resist. But a lot of human social behavior is we want to conform as well as we can. If I can do it, I want to follow this request, this rule. And there was this, one of those kind of hidden camera TV shows where they had somebody in like a doctor's waiting room and there'd be a little light that would come on and the planted person in the room would stand up every time the little light would come on in this waiting room. So they'd stand up and then, you know, the people, other people in the waiting room looking around and confused. And then the next time it goes off, a couple more people stand up with the light when this person stands up. And before you know it, the whole room is standing up every single time the light goes off. And the experiment goes on because the person that was the plant in the room has been called into the doctor's office and they leave, the light goes off, and yet everybody in the room still stands up. And nobody knows why. We're just following what we feel like we're supposed to do. And there's something in us that wants to follow rules, and today's text is going to invite us to push against this inclination in us. So I want to read for us uh, Exodus 1. Verses 8 through 21. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress with forced labor. They built supply cities and Python and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. And the Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool. If it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And so God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied 
and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is uh, one of, I, I have a growing list of my favorite biblical stories, but this is on that list of one of those stories that I feel like the more times we go back to it, uh, it continues to have power. And it's a story that I think we can understand. It's a story about a people in power who have power and yet are afraid. We often feel like when we have power, we're going to feel powerful. But the people in the story with all of the power feel afraid of the people without power because they know they're not treating them right. And there's a little thing that's going off in your head saying, I know that I'm not treating them right, and at some point they're going to resent me, they're going to you know, have their revenge. And instead of being more compassionate and fixing the problem, let me make it worse. That'll definitely work. And so they try to be harsher and harsher, thinking that this will uh, provide them with the safety and the peace, and they won't be anxious anymore, they won't be afraid, they will have the situation handled. And so the Egyptian pharaoh uh, feels like he can find his power in oppressing uh, the Hebrew people. And so he commands the death of all of the boys in the story that are born. And this feels maybe like it's caricature, maybe like we are taking it to an extreme, and perhaps it is. But we also know what it is like uh, when there are genocides in this world, when there are moments where uh, people choose to be ruthless and to try to blot out those they're afraid of. And so in the story, Pharaoh commands all of the Hebrew boys to be killed. But the story doesn't go that way. It should be. Like, we lose this if you're used to the story. The Pharaoh, the representative of the gods in the Egyptian culture, the king of the land, decrees something should happen, and it doesn't happen in the story. People keep standing up to the Pharaoh of the story. And so we begin the resistance of the book of Exodus with a group of Hebrew midwives. The grammar is a little ambiguous. It could be midwives to the Hebrews, and they don't have to be Hebrew. Uh, their names seem to imply that they are Hebrew themselves. Uh, and so there is a minor Jewish tradition that perhaps they became converts to Judaism and took on Hebrew names. But, but for the most part, we can probably read these people to be Hebrew uh, midwives that are Hebrew themselves. But these midwives are being tasked with an unthinkable rule. Uh, maybe if you've had a workplace environment where rules and regulations come down to you and you're just supposed to follow suit, you've had times where you're like, I really am not a fan of the new corporate memo, uh, the new, here's how things have to work now. And their command was something that they couldn't get behind. They're supposed to kill these boys that they are trying to bring into life, into joy, into possibility. And so... When Pharaoh comes asking for, wait, why is my rules not working out? Let's go find the midwives. Hey, what is going on here? Do you know my command? Do you understand what I've told you to do? And the midwives say, what is either a lie or a deception? Well, you know, the Hebrew women, they, they just give birth so fast. They're just so speedy. They're, they're so strong that, man, by the time the midwife even shows up, it the baby's gone. I, I don't know what to tell you, Pharaoh. And 
there's so much like room for space in this of what the deception is. Uh, you could take a literal route of them telling exactly the truth, and God has just given magnificent, amazing pregnancy birth time uh, to these women. I'm sure there's some other folks who would wish that for their own lives. Uh, that maybe this pregnancy could go a little faster. I don't want this to labor to last so long. But maybe it wasn't actually that they were just literally giving birth so fast. Maybe the midwives are intentionally delaying showing up. I've, I've been told I need to show up. Maybe I'm just going to slowly show up because I don't want to take part in this law that I've been given. So maybe they just they take the long route around town. But I'd like to think that the midwives want to help in the health of these babies, and they want to be there to deliver them. And so not just are they going to be slow to show up, but they did show up, and this is all a cover story. And they helped deliver the babies, but you know what? Pharaoh, I'm going to tell you, I wasn't there for it. I don't know what you're talking about. And it connects to, to moments in time where we are faced with the question, is it more important to be truthful or to save lives when we do these ethical calculations? Uh, the common one in our era is to ask things like, if there was a Nazi knocking on your door and you were helping protect a Jewish uh, person trying to survive the Holocaust, would you say, yeah, oh yeah, I've got someone in my house? Or would you say, I don't know what you're talking about. I, of course, I'm not the kind of person who would hide someone. When is lying and being deceptive the morally good thing to do? And that's what these midwives have to ask themselves if they're wanting to bring life in the story in the midst of injustice. And so I'm wondering whether we would be people with that kind of faith and confidence to not only care for the people in front of us and bring them to life, but also to be willing to stand up to a pharaoh and still try to protect those people and still put our own necks on the line. Because what if the Pharaoh did not believe them? And maybe they're the ones who are getting executed. It takes a lot to be someone to put your own neck out there for somebody else. And so would we be people who would resist Pharaoh in the face of laws to kill somebody else? And that seems really uh, you know, heightened, but when, when would we actually choose to love and to care for people instead of just following uh, unjust laws? This question takes a harder turn to get us to the real faith question somebody actually asked us for today. The question that was submitted was, why did God allow the killing of innocent children in the Old Testament? Specifically, things like the book of Joshua, or 1 Samuel 15, where God in the story is, is characterized as voicing the command, go into this town, kill all the men, women, children, and animals, wipe them out, decimate them, leave nothing. That becomes a harder question. I feel like most of us are championing, yeah, Exodus, we know how the story goes, let's stand up to Pharaoh. There's more tension to us of do you believe Samuel when Samuel says, God, thus says the Lord, go kill those people, even the children? Letting the tension sit. Now, there are some people who would just take this at face value and say, yes, God did tell them, kill everybody. 
And who are we to question God's ways? That's what God wanted. And maybe they could say, but that was just then. God's moved on from that, thankfully, and God isn't going to ask that of you anymore. But I have to tell you, that line is not, uh, that does not sit well with my soul. Uh, to, to imagine that the goodness of God is, is in the statement to kill the men, women, children. Um, the early church did some things to get around this. Uh, they sat with the weight of this kind of, those kinds of stories. And they said, certainly the literal at face value part of the story is not actually what matters in the story. And so they spiritualized it. And they said, oh, the story of the conquest of Canaan is not about a historical moment. It's about your spiritual life of you should clear out every little bit of, of sin or injustice or whatever might um, you know, impurify your soul. Clear that all out. So they spiritualized it. But something that we struggle to say is maybe Samuel and Joshua misunderstood God. Maybe they misunderstood in that moment. Maybe they were mistaken. Maybe they were being tested and didn't understand. What do we do with when God is the one that we assume in the story is calling for death? There's a story that uh, I love. If you've been to my office, I've got a little figure on my wall. It is uh, from Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. that came out on Netflix a year or so ago. And it is a little handcrafted from, uh, from Italy, Pinocchio. It's very dear to me, uh, and in part because the story was so dear. Guillermo del Toro took the Pinocchio story, and he did a few things to make it a little bit different. First, he set the Pinocchio story in uh, World War II is kind of on the horizon era of fascist Italy. So he set it during uh, the reign of, of fascists in Italy, and, and the world is seemingly being puppeted, that people are being told to go off to war, people are being told to mistreat people, to, uh, to hunt people down. And so he made this movie in which every character is stop motion. So it's not just a puppet and real people, but everybody's stop motion. And in the story, uh, Pinocchio is trying to learn how to be real and how to be alive. And like Guillermo del Toro likes to do in his movies, he makes the story about the virtue of disobedience. And we don't usually like that phrasing. We usually don't think disobedience is a virtue. But what happens when you live in a society that tells you to do wrong, to hate, to hurt? Maybe to cut your strings loose is to be alive and to be real and to be good and what we are meant to be. And so uh, the story of Pinocchio is turned into a story of are we all puppets or not? And are we all willing to just do what we're told or stand up when we have moments that we need to? And I feel like it might be hard to accept, but love sometimes calls us to break the rules. We know this on a small scale. You might have had a loved one ask you a question, that the question might not need an accurate response as much as a loving response. If you have uh, kids and your kids have shown you an art piece, are you judging this art piece based on a museum uh, curator's eye or an affirmation of the artist in front of you? Love sometimes breaks rules. 
I think about Jesus loving people. Often broke a lot of rules. I feel like when we talk about Jesus being sinless, a lot of first century uh, contemporaries would have been like, I have a big list of his sins. Did you hear when he healed on the Sabbath? How dare he? You should wait. Let that person be sick another day. Did you see that he touched that leper when he healed him? You should be outside of the community. You should be quarantined. But this person who was ostracized and kept aside and kept separate was brought in with Jesus' touch. Jesus' story is about saving people. Whatever the rules and the guidelines are, let them be gone. Jesus is going to love. He's going to help you know, the, uh, the legion. This man's a, a, a Gentile. He's unclean. He's got all these demons. Why do you want to go heal and be around this guy? Stay away from him. But Jesus' love often made him cross boundaries that people were certain were right. And so I want to read us a little bit more in our story. Exodus 2 verses 1 and following says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman, and that woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, I feel like that's a real common response. You look at the kid, that's the best baby. She hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came to bathe at the river, and while her attendants walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child, He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse this child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. And so the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And she took him as her son. And she named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. I love that Exodus 2 takes us from Hebrew midwives rebelling against an unlawful, unjust law to Pharaoh's own household rebelling against an unjust law. And I feel like so much of that story is about what it's like to be close to someone. That you can talk about policies, uh, especially in our age where we can make digital communications, we can tweet, we can Facebook, Instagram things, we can write things out from afar, and we can talk about what it's like for uh, people uh, living in the midst of wars like in Ukraine or people at our borders who who are seeking refuge. But what is it to be close to someone? For Moses' mother to hold your baby and say, I will hold on to this as long as I can. I know I can't hide you forever. You're going to get bigger and I can't hide you any longer. But I want to hold you a little while. Just give me three months. Can I hold you a little longer? In that same love and care, 
when they release him down the water, hoping somebody might have mercy and pity, is met with the daughter of Pharaoh. And I should point out, daughter of Pharaoh sounds like she's an only child. Probably not. Uh, As this ancient world would have been, the Pharaoh probably had a bunch of marriages of different military alliances, probably had lots of families, and he probably wasn't the best dad, probably wasn't the best husband. Uh, He probably had a lot of daughters who might not have felt close, might not have felt uh, an amazing family dynamic. But one of those daughters goes to bathe in the river with her attendants and sees a basket floating down the river. Say, hey, go get that basket. You might wonder, what might be in this basket? Like, oh, uh, I found something today. What's, what did I find? What do I, you know, I'm going to take an Instagram video. Hey, look what I found today in the river. And then you open it up and it's a baby. That was not what she was expecting that day. She did not go down to the river thinking, I'm going to save some people today. I'm going to be encountered by a a dilemma today. But she shows up, they find out it's a baby. She opened it, she saw the child. The child was crying and she took pity on him. There's something really important about being people who have eyes open, ears open, to be able to have pity, to have love, compassion, empathy. I think it would have been easier if she kept her eyes closed, plugged her ears, said, hey, push it down the river. Somebody else, let somebody else deal with this. But she opened her eyes, she heard the babies crying, and she had pity. And there is no lying, no deception going on here, because I imagine she could have had a deception if she was telling her father this. She said, this must be one of the Hebrew children. Uh, if she was explaining herself to dad, probably not using that language. She must, he must be one of the Hebrew children. And so the uh, sister, which presumably is Moses' sister, um, who's been following at a distance, comes through with an idea. Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse this child for you? And she said, yes. And so the girl went and called the child's mother. And so Moses' mother is seen to be able to nurse and take care of and raise Moses in the story. But I think that there's something important that the, the Pharaoh's daughter still takes him on as a son. She allows the other people to raise him, but she's taking responsibility for this child. And it reminded me of during the Holocaust, there were a lot of Christians in Eastern Europe who would give fake baptism slips to different Jewish people who are hiding uh, because they needed some sort of evidence to survive the atrocities that were being done to them. They needed something as a lifeline. And so again, this kind of deception for the sake of good and to love someone of, hey, as a church, what can I do for you? Can I do anything to help you survive? What if I can create some fake documents for you? Will that help you? And this Pharaoh's daughter is saying, you know what, you can be a part of my household. And, and I'll pay for someone else to take care of you. So if people come asking about the kid, say, well, I wouldn't ask about this kid. You know whose kid it is, right? It's the Pharaoh's daughter. Do you want to ask about the Pharaoh's daughter's kid? Leave him alone. And so she takes responsibility for him to give him protection. And I wonder how many of us are willing to go 
to those kinds of links to offer our support, our love, our care for those who are in need. And so I think this text invites us to reflect on, are we, when are we the Pharaoh of the story? I know none of us want to be that. So I have to ask it so we at least have to wrestle with it for a moment. When are we the people who out of fear set up systems and rules and ways of being that brings pain and hurt to somebody else? And we don't really want to see it. We don't want to hear it. We want to keep it at an arm's distance. But when is the way that I say things should be affecting and hurting somebody else? And am I willing to realize that? Am I willing to, to look at my fear and, and try to trust and, and peace and goodness and hope? And I think about for Samuel and Joshua, uh, as, as people who, was their fear of their neighbors that's at play when they are trying to conquest through Canaan and, and completely decimate their enemies? Of, of what's at play for them to, to think that God is calling them to such utter destruction. But whatever is at work there is also potentially at work in our own lives in perhaps different ways, but it's still there. Maybe you're not Pharaoh in the story. Maybe not always. Maybe you might be like Moses. How has other people in your life rescued you from waters, rescued you from pharaohs, rescued you from systems that are harming and hurting and shaming you. And shouldn't it bring such compassion out of you? Shouldn't it bring such kindness, such love, such abundant joy that in the midst of a harsh world, somebody took pity on us, took compassion, spent time on us, spoke words of affirmation over us, spent time that could have been used for themselves, used for others, but loved us. Who are those people in your life? It might be mindful to, it might be meaningful to, to be mindful of, of who are the, who is the Pharaoh's daughter in your life that has rescued you out of the river. And when you are rescued out of the river, what are you going to do with it? Uh, the next story in Exodus is Moses killing someone who was mistreating a Hebrew. And he has to flee and he goes to a well. The kid kind of raised coming out of the water is going to have to go find a little tiny well in the desert running out of fear. But do we respond with the violence that has been done to us and we just return it? Or do we turn it into compassion, into something better? Maybe in this story... You are a, a midwife. You, you are tangential to someone who's being mistreated, who's being talked down upon. Maybe You know you, what it's like to hear when people are belittling somebody that you care about? And they're just talking down about them. Of, are you willing to uh, provide some level of support and care and protection? Are you willing to do some things to support those around you that are being mistreated? And even more than the midwives... Are you willing to do that for people who aren't even in your tribe? It's a little bit harder for us to risk our own selves for people that don't feel like they're our responsibility. They're the neighbor, the person on the outside. 
But is that just the way we live life, that we are always looking to figure out how we can be a part of love instead of hate and, and goodness instead of evil? And so this week, may we reflect on when are we being told to do something that it, you would be completely understood for following through like everybody else, but when is there a moment you say, no, you know what, I know the policy is this, but I want to do this because I care about this person. I, I have to step out because love is calling me out. And so, uh, you know, that's not to say that there's not rules that are good and valuable and life-giving, but every once in a while, we have to be able to have eyes to see that maybe this rule, maybe this policy is not helping. Maybe it's hurting. And what will we do when that moment comes? And so today, we, may we be reminded of Jesus' love for us, that, that he loved us even when we were on the outside, even when we were uh, you know, not a part of God's family, even when we were enemies he loved us, cared for us, was faithful to the cross. He was willing to be considered a criminal, to be put up on a cross, to be considered uh, a traitor. May we follow in faithfulness like he did. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we just ask that you might breathe your love into each of us, that you might breathe your love into our, our minds as we think about the world around us, the people around us, what you're calling us to. May our imaginations be fresh with love. Lord, breathe your life and your love into our hearts. Make us compassionate and caring uh, the way that you care for this world. Lord, breathe your, your love into our hands and feet. Let us not just think about love and think about goodness but live it out. May we be known by that love. Lord, I just ask that you would help love to cover over us today that for whoever feels disconnected, feels alone, that they might feel the love of your embrace. For whoever feels like uh, they have too much shame, too much guilt, that they, that they just are too far gone, that you might just show your love with that open embrace, that there's a new tomorrow. Lord, let your love rule over us. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.